Okay, let's um, <clears throat> just bow our hearts one more time as we come to the word together, shall we? Father, your word tells us that in the last days there will be those that have itching ears, wanting people just to tickle them, to say the things they want to hear. Father, I pray that as a congregation of believers here, we would not be such. Lord, not just wanting to hear nice things, but Lord, wanting to hear the truth. And Lord, as we study these promises this morning in your word in one respect they are wonderful things and they do lord appeal to us they are lovely to hear to see and to understand but father i pray that this morning you take these things deeper in our hearts and lord produce a change in us that lord you give us a real desire to live godly in these last days because of these promises that we have before us lord just Take this time, take my words, Lord, take our hearts, and Father, just do a work in us and a work in this place this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we started um, just looking at the promises of God. Originally it was just going to be a one-week thing, and then uh, it's turning to, I think it's a three-week thing at the moment, so um, we'll see how we go. but uh, I've, I've personally already been blessed. I hope you've been blessed um, by some of the things we looked at last week. And we're going to just build on that this morning. I just want to take us first of all to that scripture in uh, Second Peter. Uh, as Peter's epistle, Second Peter, uh, Second Peter uh, opens up and just says, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. You think what Peter went through. You think of the kind of persecution he experienced and the struggles he had. But he's bold and proud to say that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he says, to them that have obtained like precious faith. What a wonderful thing. You know, I wonder if we can truly say that this morning. Have we obtained a like precious faith? Do we have the same kind of faith that Peter had? Do we have the kind of faith that will allow us to, may I say again, bloom where we're planted? That's the faith that Peter had. Whatever the circumstances. But he writes to those that have like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Saviour Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of our of Jesus our Lord. And then he says, according as his divine power, the divine power of Jesus Christ. Again, just, you know, some argue and try and say that Jesus is not God. There are so many verses in the New Testament, uh, let alone the Old Testament, that point to the fact that there is this Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And here, Peter says that Jesus, according to his divine power, has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him, that has called us to glory and virtue. So God has given us everything we need. Jesus has given us, he's equipped us. We're thoroughly furnished. Everything that we need to live a godly life, a virtuous life. And he says, whereby, because of this, to enable us to do this, to enable us to live that life, are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these So by the promises, because of the promises that we've been given, we might be able to be partakers of that divine nature. So we've already spoken of his divine power, that he's given us everything we need, and these promises are that which should enable us to take part of of the divine nature of Christ, to be transformed into his likeness. Of course, that's the real goal. David prayed prayed that great prayer, Lord, I'll be delighted or... um, uh, I long to uh, to awake in the likeness of you, is the way that David puts it. To be transformed to the likeness of Jesus. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You see, with Moses, of course, um, how when Moses comes down from the mountain, having spent that time with the Lord, his face is literally glowing. He's been transformed. You know, Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, from an earthly perspective, just to live that life of obedience uh, to his Father. And he's just glowing. Well, that's the Lord, the way the Lord would have us. And you, you do, don't you, bump into Christians that are just glowing with the Lord. That's wonderful, isn't it? Like just, you know, are we that type of people? Do people see that in us? But these promises are designed to produce exactly that kind of result. <clears throat> now again, last week, just to remind us, we looked <coughs> at the source of the promises. Why simply God is the source of the promises. That's why we can trust them. But God is the source of promises, and typically these promises were given to the seed of the woman. So, uh, connotatively, that's speaking of Israel. 
That's to whom the promises were given. And we've been grafted into that. We looked also to the certainty of the promises. And of course, you know, when somebody makes a promise, the question is, are they able to fulfill that promise? Do they have it within their ability or power? You know, if I were to promise you all a you know, to, to pay off your mortgages and to, to buy your Rolls Royces, you, you know, you'd, you'd know I couldn't do that. You know, so you look at people when they make a promise, can they actually fulfill? Well, all of God's promises, we're told in Corinthians, are yes and amen. God has the resources and everything necessary to fulfill all the promises that He makes. <clears throat> we looked also at the purpose of the promises. And we see quite clearly that the promises that we're given are to be an anchor for the soul. So amidst the storms of life, they give us something to hold on to, something to keep us anchored down, not to get blown around by every wind of doctrine and so on. And also, as we've just seen, that we'd be partakers of the divine nature, that we'd become more Christ-like. And then we started to look last time at the promises of God, and we saw that the very first promise in Scripture, arguably, is the greatest of all. Is the promise of death, which to the world would seem a very strange thing. But of course to us we realise that right from the start, God had a plan. And God's plan was that his son would be the propitiation, the payment in full for all of our sin. He would die so that he would then get victory over death. And then in him, no longer is death a threat to us anymore. So we see that very first promise back in the book of Genesis. So that's where we started and we looked at the first kind of promise that God makes, uh, sorry, the man makes in response to all of these things in uh, the Garden of Eden. Adam makes his promise to be united with his wife. And we see the lovely picture of the bride, the bridegroom and everything else. And of course there's a, a, a symbolic side to that where marriage doesn't speak of just one man and one woman. It's speaking of Christ and the church. <clears throat> one commentator I was looking at during the week, suggests that there's actually 7,474 promises of God in the Bible. So, what I thought we'd do... (laughs) No, it's okay. Another commentator actually was a little bit more conservative and suggested somewhere about 3,500 promises. But, you know, depending on how you count things. But there's no question, the Bible is full of God's promises. Now, of course, these were sufficient for Peter. We've just been looking there already. For Paul... Paul who said that God's promises are yes and amen for David, for Abraham, Joshua, Daniel and all those other characters reading in scripture. You know, they've also been sufficient for the likes of Wycliffe and Wesley, for Whitfield, for Spurgeon, for Moody, for Oswald Chambers and so many others that have gone before us. You know, the question is, are these promises sufficient for you? You know, do we go to God wanting something else? You know, Oh Lord, just just tell me you love me, or Lord, just just guide me, just show me in this situation. Hasn't God promised repeatedly through His Word that He will guide and lead those that are His? You know, so often we end up going to God and asking Him for things that He's already given us the answers to, even blessing. Oh Lord, please bless me. How many times do we read in Scripture, "Blessed is the man that," and then you're told what you need to do if you want to become beneficiaries of those blessings? And next week what we're going to look at is the conditional promises. This morning, what I'd like to do again, just to mention last week we talked about conditional promises and unconditional promises. And uh, Collins Dictionary, for one, just um, defines promises to give assurance of something to someone, to undertake to do something in the future. That's what we're talking about when we talk about a promise. And very much we see that these are giving assurance of something. To specifically the descendants of Israel, to those that are in the line of the seed, and obviously all those then who are in Christ Jesus. And God, in all of these things, undertakes to do something. So, as I said this morning, what I'd like to do is to look at the covenant promises, or the unconditional promises. The promises that are not dependent on anything you do. Okay? Other than one caveat, of course, is being in Christ. But once you're in Christ, these promises are unconditional. And you'll see that the promises to whom they were made, they were unconditional promises. And as I said, next week what we'll do, uh, Lord willing, we'll just tie this uh, study off and we'll look at the conditional promises, all the blessings that are there that God says that we can take advantage of if we want to. So let's have a look at these promises then. So 
These are the ones I've listed, and there's probably others that we could look at in Scripture, but these seem to be the main ones that I can find just going through Scripture, looking at that which is specifically designed at, or, or sorry, defined as a promise. First of all, we've got the promise of the seed. Genesis 3.15, we're told of that. Um, the seed, the one who would come. Now, the promise is in effect made to mankind. And it's the promise of a redeemer. One who would come, who would purchase man back following the events of the fall. The second promise that we have, really, is the promise of the rainbow. Now, this is very interesting. We'll look at this in just a moment in more detail. But again, the promise is made to all mankind and also to the earth, actually. And the promise is to never destroy the earth with water again. God would never judge the world world through uh, sending another worldwide flood. And then we move on to the promise of the nation. God chooses Abraham, calls Abraham. Out of Ur of the Chaldees, this very prosperous, big, kind of industrial city back in the days of Abraham. And he calls Abraham out of this city. And he calls him to be a nation. He says that in him all of the families of the earth are to be blessed. And of course Abraham becomes the father of the nation of Israel. And then there's the promise of the land, and also made to Abraham, the first promise in Genesis 12. and Genesis 15, God reiterates the promises given, but also makes this agreement, this covenant, that to Abraham and his descendants would be given the land of Israel. It was to be theirs for a permanent possession. Then we get to the time of David, and there's another significant, unconditional promise that's made. It's made to David of the kingdom. There's already been uh, the, the monarchy established in Israel. Um, Saul has, has done that. God allowed it, of course. God had already intended it, even though Israel had jumped the gun. But David finally is the, the is appointed king. And to David, God makes this promise that his kingdom will be a perpetual dynasty. It would go on and on and on, because eventually the Messiah would come from David's line. We've then got a promise of the resurrection. And this is a promise that is throughout the Old Testament. This promise is made to the faithful, those that trusted. Of course, the promise applies to us as believers today. But right the way, through the Old Testament, this promise was there. We'll look at that. And of course, the promise, really the effect of the promise was the victory over death. Then we get to the New Covenant. We've been talking about that already as we shared and celebrated our communion this morning. The new covenant made by the blood of Jesus. This promise is to believers and it's salvation through Christ. And it applies to believers in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament believers were looking forward to this. They never got to be partakers of it, but they were looking forward to it. Ultimately, I believe, and we can look and study this some other time, that once Jesus had been crucified, Jesus descended to the place that we refer to sometimes in Scripture as paradise, um, uh, part of Hades. And Jesus went to present himself to the believers that were there so that they could accept him. You see, there is salvation in no other name. The only way to the Father is through Jesus. And that would apply to all the Old Testament saints too. So all of them have to have put their trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus then, we're told, leads captivity captive. And this holding place, if you like, is shifted for the righteous from being within the, the bowels of the earth up to heaven. And that's where all the righteous are now, waiting for new bodies, waiting for that resurrection uh, that we will talk about again in just a moment. We've then got the promise of the Holy Spirit. And again, that's not just a New Testament promise. We see that in the Old Testament also. But it's a promise specifically given. It's an unconditional promise. One of the most amazing facts when you look at the Holy Spirit is that we cannot lose the Holy Spirit. If you are born again, he has been given to you forever. That's breathtaking. And then finally, the promise of the new Jerusalem, where believers will dwell forever. This eternal dwelling. So, those are the, the basic uh, promises. That there, as I say, there, there may be others. And certainly we can think things like John 14, which speaks of uh, the place that Jesus has gone to prepare for us and so on. We could bring all those in. But specifically, these are the ones that seem to be highlighted uh, as you go through and look at the promises we have. 
So I'll just go through this list this morning and just look at them in a little bit more detail and uh, see what we can draw out of it. Firstly then in Genesis 3.15, the promise of the seed. We know the scripture I'm sure very well, but we read again, I will put enmity between thee, speaking of Satan, and the woman. Between thy seed, speaking ultimately of um, the descendants of Satan, the satanic uh, offspring and ultimately leading to Antichrist, and her seed, ultimately Jesus. Speaking of then, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Really speaking of the feet of Jesus being pierced, but ultimately this fatal wound that is inflicted upon the enemy by Jesus. And there's that great picture we've talked already uh, on previous times, um, Golgotha, this incredible place that we read of in scripture where Jesus was crucified, and people think that it's called the place of the skull because this crop outcrop of rock looks a little bit like a skull, and it does, I suppose. Um, but of course, erosion over many years, did it look like that at the time? We don't know. But what seems to be fascinating is in Samuel we're told that when David kills Goliath, who's typically a, a type of, of the enemy against David, and again, David slays Goliath with these stones and uh, so on. That, oh, this single stone, isn't it? Um, you know, that stone striking the head. The stone, again, speaking of Jesus, striking the head of the enemy. But David chops off Goliath's head and takes the head of Goliath to Jerusalem. Which you can read over when you read the text, but it's a bizarre thing because at that time Jerusalem is in the hands of the Jebusites. It's not in Israel's possession. It's not until later that David captures it. So effectively David has to sneak in to enemy territory to bury the head of Goliath at this place that is then known as Golgotha, Goliath of Gath. The place is named after this giant whose head is buried there. And ultimately in this display of Christ's victory, as Jesus is crucified, his feet, his bruised, pierced feet, are above the place, right upon the place of the head of Goliath. And we see back in Joshua, symbolically, the, 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 feet, were put, or the feet of the conquering uh, Israelites were put upon the head of their enemies to declare their victory. Jesus does just the same. What an incredible promise this is to really kind of start the scene. And all of these promises, they're all part of God's incredible plan. I think this is why this is so significant, that all of these condition, sorry, unconditional or covenant promises, they're all specifically part of God's plan of redemption. So we see this promise of a redeemer. And again, he would have to be a kinsman of Adam. And Jesus, of course, was. Also, born of a woman. We see in Isaiah 7.14, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. This is speaking to um, um, Ahab, the king of Israel. Uh, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. This is a great promise in itself, because it's saying again, this is all part of this promise that we see coming down through scripture. Jesus was... Fully God and yet fully human. He was born of a virgin. I don't believe that any part of Jesus was any part of Mary. Mary simply was a surrogate mother. It was very interesting when um, Dr. David Rosie was speaking um, recently at David and Hazel's in the evening. Uh, back in December he was talking about DNA and a number of other things he was going through. And it was just some of the things that came out. One of the things that was about um, the whole issue of you know, was it Mary's egg? And uh, I don't believe no, it wasn't. One of the reasons scripturally we're told that when, Jesus, when the Holy Spirit is speaking to Mary, um, it speaks of conception taking place in the womb. That's not where conception usually takes place. Conception usually takes place in the fallopian tube. But Jesus is implanted as a complete individual, as it were, uh, in the womb. Completely God. Just as Adam was fully God. Now one of the problems people sometimes have is, well then how can he can be the son of David? Well he was still born of Mary. He still, in, he still in, inherits that, that lineage. He's still part of that line. He's born, physically born of Mary. But he was fully God. Again, just as Adam had been created sinless originally by God until he sinned, so Jesus, again the physical body of Jesus, is implanted into the womb of Mary. And this promise, incredible promise of the seed is fulfilled. Galatians 3.16 tells us now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. Now that we looked at this last week, that's the source of these promises. And promises made to Abraham and to his descendants. He says not and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. 
So Paul to the Galatian Christians just ties this off beautifully for us and says that the promise of the seed was always looking for its fulfilment in the person of Jesus Christ, the one who would be the Redeemer. So that's the first great promise we have. And of course we've seen the fulfilment of that. The second promise... I'll be honest with you, is a bit of a strange one. Because it's definitely a promise that we ought to put in this list, but it doesn't, in one sense, seem to fit necessarily in the overall scheme of things. Of course we understand that the basis of the flood was God was destroying the the wicked uh, humans on the earth, uh, the Nephilim and so on that have infiltrated. We understand that from Scripture. Let's just look at the text first of all. Genesis 9:13 to 16 we read, I do set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud and I will look upon it that I remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. So, why this promise? Well, no doubt to give comfort to the post-flood generations. You know, there had been no rain prior to the time of the flood. Originally, in Eden and so on, there had been a mist that had gone up from the ground and watered the earth. There had been no rain. At the time of the flood... What seems to be this water canopy surrounding the earth comes crashing down and water from within the earth comes up. And so no doubt after the flood, the first time it rained after the flood, people must have been just a little bit edgy. And so this promise is given, no doubt, because God is a God of peace, a God of comfort, and wanted to assure those living on the earth that he wasn't going to do that again. So there's definitely one obvious reason, but it seems to be a bigger uh, issue than that. And I think it's because this speaks of God's character. Now, of course, again, this is important in the, the whole lineage, in a sense, the, the plan of redemption, because Satan had this attempt to try and wipe out the human race. And God, through Noah and his family, had preserved it. But I think it's fascinating when you look at this particular promise, because it's representative, representative of all of God's promises. You see, it gave assurance of God's faithfulness. It would give comfort amidst storms, literally physical storms, but for us, in type. It would remind of God's righteous judgment. It would engender a reverent fear of God as they would think of what had taken place. It would also produce godliness because of the same reason. And it would remind of God's salvation. And the last there, of course, is the basis of, of which of these faith. You know, Noah's faith was that which effectively secured his salvation through the ark and so on. It was just trusting God. And all of God's promises are summed up in this. Because every one of God's promise, promises we find in scripture assure us of God's faithfulness. You know, we are unfaithful, but God is faithful. He cannot deny himself, we're told. And it does. Every promise of God gives us comfort amidst the storms of life. Again, for the ladies yesterday, looking at blooming where you're planted, how applicable. Maybe God's trying to say something to us, is he? You know, amidst the the storms that we go through in life, we can be comforted. And this promise of the rainbow was to give comfort for them after the flood. And for us, all of God's promises to do the same thing. And to remind us of God's judgment. The flood is interesting in a sense that, you know, why did God choose the flood? There was lots of other things God probably could have done, but he chooses to do this in this way. And it then becomes this continual reminder. Maybe it's because geographically we can see the evidence of it around the world. Of course, if you look with evolutionary eyes, you won't see those things, but if you look with normal eyes, you will. The evidence of the flood is all over the world. You know, we look around and we see the, this, this reminder that God is a God who will bring judgment but that's a good thing because we don't want to see the unrighteous getting away with it forever and again that fear of God and all all these things again so encourage you to maybe look at this promise a bit more yourself because I'm sure there's more here and we could spend longer this morning but I want to move on for now let's look at the next one the nation of course 
We're reading Genesis chapter 12, first three verses. Now the Lord has said unto Abraham, his name not yet changed at this point, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation. And I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curses thee. Governments of the world should take note of that particular portion. Uh, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And of course, because of Jesus, one of the descendants, according to the flesh of Abraham, all the families of the earth have indeed had that opportunity of blessing, whether they've availed themselves of it or not. Psalm 77, 6 to 8, says, I call to remembrance my song in the night. I commune with my own heart and my spirit make diligent search. Will the Lord cast off forever? Will he be favorable no more? This is speaking of the nation of Israel. Is his mercy clean gone forever? And then does his promise fail forevermore? This promise that Israel would forever be a nation before him. Again, Genesis 18 we read, And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? Now this is as God is about to send the angels to Sodom and Gomorrah. But he says, verse 18, Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. This promise, again, of this nation that would come from Abraham. 2 Samuel 7, we read verse 23, And what one nation in the earth is like thy people? Even like Israel, whom God went to redeem for a people to himself, and to make him a name, and to do for you great things and terrible for thy land before thy people, which thou redeemest to thee from Egypt and uh, from the uh, nations and their gods. For thou hast confirmed to thyself thy people Israel to be a people unto thee forever, and thou, Lord, art become their God. Wouldn't it be great if that verse could be read in most churches? How many churches, sadly, just ignore the truth of what we just read there? That God has chosen Israel. They were a special nation to him because he was going to use them to fulfill his plan. Jeremiah, an incredible verse. You just read a couple of verses, verse, uh, th- chapter 31, verse 36 and 37. Speaking of the, the sun, the moon, and so on, he says, If those ordinances depart from before me, if the sun and the moon would disappear says the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all they have done, says the Lord. In other words, it's not going to happen. God is not going to cast off Israel. You see, just as the moon and the sun are there in this order of things, so Israel will remain as a nation before God. God fulfilling his promise to Abraham. Well, we then go on and see the promise of the land. Not just that Israel would be a nation, but they would have a specific place to live. Now, Genesis 15, picking up verse 7, he said unto him, to Abraham, um, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And we go on to verse 18, and it carries on, and God, after performing this incredible kind of ritual in front of Abraham, Abraham is put to sleep by God does this. In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, uh, the river Euphrates, it goes on. <clears throat> First Kings tells us, Blessed be the Lord that has given rest unto his people Israel according to all that he promised. Notice again, the promise. He's given this land to Israel. Abraham didn't inherit that land, by the way, straight away. Abraham remained throughout all his life a sojourner. He was, he'd never had a permanent dwelling. He was, in a sense, a guest in that land. It was the same for Isaac and the same for Jacob. They didn't live in the land. They didn't, it wasn't their possession as such. It's not until they come back under Joshua that they take possession of the land in fulfillment of God's promise. But God was faithful. God gave rest to his people of Israel according to all that he promised. There has not fell one word of all his good promise, which he promised by the hand of Moses, his servant. You know, this is just a great example of God's promises. You know, that which God's, God promises, he will perform. 
Acts 7.17 says, But when the time of the promise drew nigh, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt. You see, the promise had been given, the land was not yet theirs. We have this period of 430 years from the time of the promise being given to Abraham when he's 75 years old, when he leaves his country. It's 430 years later that they come back and they leave Egypt and effectively from that point the land is granted to them. We're told in the book of Exodus it was the self-same day. It was the exact day, 430 years to the day. And God fulfilled and confirmed his promise. The land became Israel's at that point. And then simply they had to just simply go and claim it. But when the time of the promise drew near, again, the people started to grow in Egypt. God was getting the nation ready. They went in as a family. They came out as a nation. Psalm 105, picking up verse 42, we read, For he remembered his holy promise, and Abraham his servant. It's spoken of as a holy promise here. And he brought forth his people with joy, and his chosen with gladness, and gave them the lands of the heathen, and they inherited the labour of the people. God said that they would inherit you know, houses they'd not built, and cities they'd not built, and so on. So the kingdom, the next significant promise, as part of God's overall plan of everything. First Chronicles chapter 17, picking up verse 11, and we read, And it shall come to pass that when thy days be expired, that thou must go to be with thy fathers, that I will raise up thy seed after thee, which shall be of thy sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house, and I will, I will establish his throne forever. This promise that God makes to David, that when David died, his dynasty would not come to an end, that there would be a descendant of his always on the throne. I will be his father, he shall be my son, I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it from him that was before thee, speaking of Saul. But I will settle him in mine house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forevermore. In Second Samuel chapter 7, again, we've covered this for last year when we're going through our, our journey through the Bible, one of the most significant chapters in the Bible. But verse 12 picks up and says, And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 2 Chronicles 1.9 This is now Solomon in response to these promises that have been given to David, praying to God, he says, Now, O Lord God, let thy promise unto David my father be established. For thou hast made me king over a people like the dust of the earth in multitude. So Solomon now claiming this promise, being absolutely confident that God would do that which he'd said he would do. And of course, Solomon's kingdom is established. It becomes probably the, the highest point in the nation uh, in terms of um, their... Uh, power uh, amongst the nations. Incredible. To, but of course, even after Solomon, the kingdom doesn't get stripped away from David, even though uh, Rehoboam, his son, makes some very silly mistakes. The kingdom is not taken away because of this promise. Acts thirteen twenty two to 23, we read there, when he had removed him, he raised up, speaking of Saul, he raised up David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. It's a lovely statement in itself, isn't it? Which shall fulfill all my will. Of this man's seed has God, according to his promise, raised up Israel. A saviour, raised up unto Israel, a saviour, Jesus. So Jesus being of the lineage in the house of David, being the one who'd been promised. This verse actually you could look at in, in connection with the seed and so on. The promise of the seed, but also the promise of the kingdom and so on. And then the promise of the resurrection. Again, this promise that we see throughout. And Acts 26, verse 6 to 8. Paul, imprisoned uh, and the house arrest effectively at this time, speaking, he says, and now, I stand, sorry, and now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers. So Paul's saying, you know, it's because of the promise that God made that you are now judging me, and to which promise are twelve tribes instantly serving God day and night hope to come. So saying, this isn't just a promise that he's holding on to, this is a promise that every Jew holds on to. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. 
Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? Paul saying that the promise that he was holding on to, the promise that the twelve tribes had held on to, was that there was a future resurrection. That this life was not all there is. That there is something more. And that there would come a time that God would raise the dead. We read Acts 13, picking up verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, notice again, these promises made to Israel and so on, has God fulfilled the same unto us, uh, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus again, and it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Again, a promise of the resurrection and then Jesus becoming the first fruits of that resurrection. Now, in the Old Testament, we see a number of examples of this. Because, as we've just seen, it was the hope of the twelve tribes. It was every Jewish believer's hope, with the exception of one group, which we'll mention in a moment, that the resurrection was something they could look forward to. Jacob are specifically to be taken back and buried in the land of Israel. Kind of barren land that was kind of parched wilderness at that point. There had been no rain for a long time. They were just enduring this, these years of famine. Two years into the famine, they moved down into Egypt and they've got this just lush grass, greenery, food, everything they possibly need. You know, you think, well, I'm not going to go back home, this is great. But Jacob makes a point of saying, I want you to take me back and bury me in the land of my fathers. Abraham, again, purchases the cave of Machpelah. That's where he was buried and his wife was buried, Sarah was buried. Where Leah becomes buried and then Jacob asks to be buried and is taken back there as well. We see also Joseph make his descendants and those around him, make them promise that they would take his body out of Egypt back to Israel. Why? Because of the hope of the resurrection. The Jews believed that they had to be buried in that. Now you can argue maybe there's a little bit of superstition on their part because scripturally there's no uh, geographical location in which you have to be buried to benefit from the resurrection. It's not about where you're buried. It's about where you live, ultimately. But we see the same also with Ruth. Ruth, when she's coming back with... Naomi makes the point that your God will be my God and then where you're buried, I will be buried. She understands the hope of the resurrection. And it's incredible we have this Gentile that puts her trust in the God of Israel and has this hope of a future resurrection. Again, Ruth so much speaks of, of us and the Gentiles. But all of them have this, this hope of the future resurrection. And of course, the exception of that group of the Sadducees, and they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. And they had this issue, and we see that come out in the Gospels. First Timothy verse four, sorry, chapter 4, verse 8. For bodily exercise profits little. I do like that verse, but there is actually more to it than just that first section. For bodily exercise profits little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is, and of that which is to come. You see, for us, we've got this great promise that there is a resurrection, there is a future. This life, these bodies are not it. And it is a great promise we have. And of course, in one sense, we can't separate that from the promise of the new covenant. We're told in Ephesians 3, 5 to 6, which in other ages was not made known, this is talking of God's plan and so on, was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit that the Gentiles, (laughs) you and I, should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. This is the promise of a better covenant. We've been going through our Bible studies, looking in Hebrews, and this idea comes out. The idea that the covenant that Jesus established is a better covenant than anything that had gone before it. And we've been partakers of this promise. This promise, of course, you understand, was not specifically given to the Gentiles. But we have been grafted in. Of course, God's plan was always that the gospel would go out to the whole world. 
but to the Jew first, then to the Gentiles. Hebrews 8 verse 6 says, But now has he, speaking of Jesus, obtained a more excellent ministry. By how much more also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. You see, it's not established upon what we can do. It's not our effort, it's not our ability to bring sacrifice day after day after day to the door of the temple. It's established on the blood of Christ. So much better promises this new covenant has been established on. And we're told in 1 John 2, 25, And this is the promise that he has promised us, even eternal life. You see, all of these promises are unconditional. It's not about your ability to do something in order to benefit from them. Other than, as I say, the one caveat is you have to be in Christ. But if you are in Christ, if you are born again, these promises are yours. And you can't lose them. In Jeremiah, we see that even before the cross, we have these ideas and this promise is is already starting to to be discussed. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33. Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, there's a, a number of ways that covenant will be fulfilled and we'll maybe, God willing, explore those things some other time. But not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers and the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke. Although I was a husband unto them, says the Lord, but this should be the covenant that I make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and will write it in their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now ultimately that will be fulfilled when we get to the new Jerusalem. When Jews and Gentiles, bond free, male, female, there will be no distinctions anymore. And God will be our God. We will be his people and we will walk with him in harmony. This promise, again, a promise made to the fathers, made to the Jews, that we've become beneficiaries of as well. Romans 4, 13 to 16 says, For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed, although um, the law by... Sorry, let me read that again. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed though uh, through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So it wasn't something that they were going to obtain by effort by the law by that which they could do or keep but through faith for if they which are of the law be heirs faith is made void and the promise made of no effect because the law works wrath for where the law is there is transgression again speaking that the law could only condemn us that was what the law was actually in, intended to do therefore is it of faith that it might be by grace to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, speaking of the Jews, but to that also which is of faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, speaking of Jews and Gentiles. So again, this promise ultimately of salvation through faith. Is the law then against the promises of God? Paul asks in Galatians chapter 3, picking up verse 21. Again, is the law against the promises of God? God forbid. If there had been a law given which could have given life, very righteousness should have been by the law. But scripture has concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. So this promise to Jew, to Gentile, is to anyone that believes. This promise of a better covenant, not based upon the law, not based upon what we could do, but based upon Jesus Christ. Therefore it cannot fail. And then we have this wonderful promise. Now, you notice I put a little asterisk on there. You may have noticed that and thinking, why has he done that? Well, the reason is because, in one sense, this is a promise that applies also to the Jews. They are promised to be filled with the Spirit. And we'll look maybe some other time, Lord willing, at some of those scriptures, particularly in Ezekiel and so on. But this is a promise that is very uniquely given to the church. Let's look at Luke 
24:49 behold i will send the promise of my father upon you upon you upon you sorry but to tarry you in the city of jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high that's the first time really we're uh, given this information jesus speaking to the disciples about this promise and again john tells us a lot about this in the upper room discourse acts chapter 1 verse 4 through 5 and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples before he ascends. But wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, you have heard of me. And Jesus, again referring to that conversation he has in the upper room. Uh, John records that, John 14, 15, 16, 17 and so on. Um, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Acts 2.33 Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which you now see and hear. Peter speaking on the day of Pentecost. What was going on? Well, this was God's promise that they were now witnessing. The promise of the Holy Ghost. Later on in that same chapter, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the uh, remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off even as many as the Lord our God shall call now this is again just such an incredible promise because if we were to go back into John's Gospel you'll see that the Holy Spirit is given to the church forever to be there as a comforter for us But he will never leave us. And when the Holy Spirit will eventually be removed from this world, and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 speaks of that time, when the power of the Holy Spirit that is holding back the mystery of iniquity in this world, when the Holy Spirit is removed, the church will also be removed. And that will occur at the time of the rapture. And then, if I may use uh, this expression, all hell will break loose on earth. Now, people will still be able to be saved during that time. It doesn't mean people can't be saved during those early days of the tribulation. But the Spirit has been given for the church to indwell believers. What an incredible privilege. Ephesians 1.13 says, In whom you also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom after <coughs> also after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Now, what a a lovely promise that you have been sealed it's a guarantee of your inheritance you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise that as a believer the Holy Spirit indwells you he'll never leave you and so finally again you see God's plan down through the ages through the corridors of time God is outside of time And obviously planned all of this right from before the foundation of the world. The final promise that we're given is this promise of an eternal dwelling. 2 Peter 3.13 says, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. Now, we've seen this morning already, a lot of those promises have already certainly in some degree, been fulfilled. Promises to Israel. The promise of the Holy Spirit coming and being given to us fulfilled. The promise of salvation through Jesus. And this is no less certain, that we have this eternal dwelling to look forward to. Hebrews thirteen fourteen says, For here have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Yeah, we don't have a place here. This isn't our home. We're not really citizens of, this, of, of earth. You know, we're just here as sojourners, just as Abraham was. We're waiting for our eternal home. Hebrews 11, 9 to 10 says, By faith he, Abraham, sojourned in the land of promise. See, it's the land of promise. It wasn't yet his land. It was the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob. The heirs... With him of the same promise. They never got to partake of it. They never got to experience that land that was theirs. That would come later, as I said earlier, under um, Joshua. But then we're told, for he looked for a city. See, he wasn't even looking just for that which was going to be accomplished in the natural. He was looking for something beyond that. For he looked for a city 
which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That's the kind of place we want to be dwelling. And then in John, sorry, in Revelation 21, we read there, And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. How wonderful, how beautiful. I mean, you you never get to a wedding day and a a bride looks a bit of a mess, do you? That doesn't happen. It's been a long time. You know, I remember my bride on our wedding day, just walking down the aisle, she looked beautiful. She she always does. I mean, I'm not just saying that, dig a hole there, couldn't I? But brides, this that beautiful, and we're told that this new city, this new Jerusalem, will be coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for a husband. That's how beautiful it's going to be. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, "Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them. They shall be His people, and God Himself shall be with them, and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes." And there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things have passed away. That's what we're looking forward to. So those are some of the covenant promises of God. Next week, Lord willing, we'll conclude and we'll look at the conditional promises. The things that you can have if you want it. And I think when we look at them, you'll realize that actually we should be trying to strive to have those things. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've been in complete control of history right from the time that you created this world, from the time of Adam and Eve, Lord, when they first fell. Lord, we see your plan being put into action. And Lord, through you calling Abraham, making of him a great nation, Lord, giving him that land, then establishing the kingdom, making a way for your own son to become the king of kings. Lord, that great promise of the resurrection, the promise of our salvation, Lord, not that we would just be raised, but we raised to new life, eternal life, that we have the promise of your Holy Spirit, and then, Lord, the future dwelling in the new Jerusalem with you. Thank you, Lord, for these exceedingly great and precious promises. Lord, I pray they stir our hearts. And Lord, give us truly an anchor for our soul that we not be blown around by the storms of life. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.